Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com and ADC Media, producers of fine Catholic programming like Light of the East, and supplier of imaging, underwriting announcements, and promos for Catholic podcasts and radio stations. Inquire at ADC Media 128 at Outlook.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. This week in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, there is an interesting feast called the Feast of the Protection of the Mother of God. It happens on October 1st. Oh, hard to believe. We're already getting into October and this feast actually is about a historical event that happened in about the ninth century when some people were praying in a church in Blasene, which is actually in modern-day Turkey near Istanbul, which at that time was called Constantinople. And they were praying at night in the church during an all-night vigil. And they were praying because the city of Constantinople was actually experiencing some disaster, some disease and earthquakes and so on. While they pray, there was someone there called Andrew the Fool, Andrew the Fool for Christ. The Eastern churches have uh, those type of saints, the fools for Christ. <laughs> they kind of like feigned or at least seemed to be mad, but they did so for Christ. And he looked up and there standing over the church was the Blessed Mother. And she spread her mantle, like her veil, over the whole city of Constantinople. And others began to see this because in Eastern churches, it's very important for visions to be seen by many, not just one person. And in fact, the first person was Andrew, the fool, but then he nudged his friend who was standing there praying with him and other people in the church, and they all looked up and saw, yes, in fact, the Blessed Mother was there over the city of Constantinople, spreading her veil and protecting it from disaster. So ever since then, we celebrate that feast day on October 1st in the Byzantine liturgical calendar. And many of our churches are actually named after the protection of the Mother of God. In the Slavonic language, it's called the pokrov, or pokrova. In other words, the protection of the Mother of God. The icon shows her suspended as if she's there in the sky, suspended over the church and the city. And she spreads her mantle, like her veil, over the entire city as if to protect it. It's a beautiful feast day as all of them are for the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
We have been focusing, at least all of us priests have, in fact, I have to admit, us priests have been a bit dismayed. Maybe saying a bit dismayed is understating it. We're actually very dismayed at the reality that many, many Catholics do not believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. Now, I don't know how prevalent that is among the Eastern Catholic churches. I hope it's not very prevalent. I hope it's not prevalent in any church. But the statistics say among Catholics East and West, only three out of 10 actually believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. And this is staggering and very disappointing because the Eucharist truly, as the church says, is the source and summit of our existence. And in both churches, East and West, it is treated with equal priority, equal reverence. It is the source and summit of our existence in the church, East and West. It's everything. And to get a little bit of insight into the approach that the Eastern churches take for the Eucharist, we'd like to once again look towards our liturgy, how we experience the Eucharist in the liturgy of the Eastern churches. As always, when we come down to the most fundamental principles, the most fundamental beliefs, there's really not a difference between the Eastern and Western lungs of the church. It's a difference really of how we approach those teachings, how we emphasize them. There are many faceted diamonds, and it's a matter of what facet of the diamond we are looking at but it's still the same diamond. So think of the differences between the East and Western churches in that way. Many people like to ask, well, what is the difference between the Byzantine church and the Roman Catholic church? Or more specifically, the Latin Rite church. It's hard to come down to just one thing or to sum it up in just one thing it's different. But if I could possibly sum that up, I would simply say it's a matter of perspective, of emphasis, of the different facets of the one same diamond. And they're all equal. In the Eastern churches, the approach to the Eucharist, as it should be in all churches, is first and foremost that this is indeed the real presence of Jesus Christ. In other words, the bread and wine and a little bit of water that is used and prepared during the liturgy, that actually does become the body and blood of Christ. In fact, we believe it so much and we emphasize it so much in the Eastern churches that We actually don't speak so much of the distinction between, as St. Thomas did for us, the accident, substance, essence, and so on. In other words, people ask, well, if it's the body blood of Christ, how come it still looks like bread? Or what do you do with the bread crumbs? Well, in Eastern churches, we, in a sense, we don't even ask that question. We just say, it's the body and blood of Christ, period. We don't look at it as accidents, essence, substance, so on, although those are perfectly valid philosophical terms that are very, very helpful to explain a great, great mystery. It's very strong in the Western lung of the church, especially with the work and great mind of the great St. Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas. He really helps to explain things. Well, the Eastern church, always favoring mystery, we, in a sense, don't explain it. We just say that it is. The body and blood of Christ, his soul and divinity, God fully present, incarnate in the bread and the wine, it becomes the body and blood of Christ. And in fact, there's an elaborate preparation that leads up to the consecration, the liturgy, and the actual reception of Eucharist, and there's a time afterward too. So we take it so seriously that we actually have a big buildup to it. You know when that buildup starts? Well, actually, it starts... (laughs) <laughs> the moment we wake up in any morning when we're trying to live in accord with the Eucharist, live the Christian message. So we can actually point to many starting points of preparation to receive the body and blood of Christ in the real presence. But 
the liturgical preparation actually begins the night before, which actually begins the next day. It's the setting of the sun. It's the evening prayer service called the Vesper service. After the Vesper service, the next day begins. So, for example, on Saturday evening, the Vesper service is actually beginning Sunday. So it's actually the first liturgical service to begin our preparation for the Eucharist. Everything becomes, in a sense, a preparation for the Eucharist. The Eucharist becomes that climatic moment in the daily or the weekend liturgical prayer. So in the Vesper service, as we pray, and we pray in a way that's very repentant, we talk about the setting of the sun, the new day, Christ being symbolized by the joyful light. We sing a beautiful hymn called Old Tranquil Light or Old Joyful Light, which, of course, refers to Christ, the light coming into the darkness. We do all this preparation, and then ideally we want to go to confession. And then we spend the rest of the evening actually putting on our liturgical game face. In other words, Saturday night is not party night. I remember growing up as a child, Saturday evening in my home was actually a kind of a wind-down a preparation for Sunday. We kind of wound down. We didn't do a lot. We didn't go out partying and so on on Saturday. Sometimes we had guests and so on. There were some social events that my parents went to, I remember. But by and large, Saturday evening was a wind down and a preparation for the next day. You know, we took our baths and we just sort of quieted down, read stories and so on, got ready, read the Bible, got ready for the liturgy. So there was already a preparation. Then there was a preparation en route to church. We talked about the liturgy, talked about the gospel, talked about faith. Once we're in church, there is in the Byzantine church a rite of preparation, an entire rite, a ritual that prepares the bread and wine to become the body and blood of Christ. That's how serious we take it. The priest takes the bread, which is a leavened bread, and he actually cuts it into different pieces There's a major piece in the center of the loaf of bread, which is called the Achnaz, or the lamb. And it has embossed on it the insignia of Christ in Greek, I-C-X-C-N-I-K-A. In other words, Jesus Christ conquers. It's abbreviations in Greek. And there's a cross in the middle of that insignia. And that is stamped into the bread. And the priest cuts the bread, and for every cut he makes, every motion he makes, he says a particular commemoration. He commemorates the Blessed Mother. He commemorates the angels, the prophets. He actually goes through the entire hierarchy in heaven, and he puts a particle of that bread as he cuts it onto the discos. Eventually, those things will be consecrated. Then he pours wine and water to the chalice and blesses that. He says prayers as he puts a veil over each item, the chalice and also the discos, And then he puts a veil over all that together. And as he does that action, for every action he does, he says a prayer that's relative to the scripture, relative to that action. And then he does some more prayers and then incenses the gifts. Those gifts then are going to be taken in a grand procession called the Great Entrance from that side table, which is in the sanctuary off to the left. It used to be in an entirely different or separate building called the Scalphalachian, big Greek word. But the gifts were prepared there, and there was a grand procession from that building into the church. Now it just goes from the side table in the sanctuary out through the icon screen, you know, beyond the sanctuary, through the nave, through the people, and back into the sanctuary where the priest and deacon then place the gifts on the altar to be consecrated. They're incensed again, and they're covered with the veil. See, in the church. East and West, if you notice, things that are sacred 
we cover, we veil them because they're mysteries and they're precious and they're holy. It's like a bride. A bride is fully and richly adorned, isn't she? She doesn't wear a swimming suit to her wedding, right? She usually wears a, at least she should wear, a white dress that covers most all of her body in a very elegant and feminine way because she's special and it's a special moment. Same thing in the liturgy. And that's a good guide, especially for the young ladies, in terms of how to understand modesty. In the church, we veil what is a beautiful mystery, what is special and sacred, just like a woman and a woman's body. So we veil it, but then we unveil it only at certain times for certain eyes as we approach the Eucharist for those who are worthy to receive it. And of course, none of us are really worthy, but it is God who makes us worthy. And we try to adopt that posture of receptivity, that we are in a certain state of grace enough to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So there is a great buildup to the Eucharist, which means it has to be very, very special. It has to be, in fact, the presence of Christ. And the liturgy itself helps us to believe that by all the ritual, the veils, the incense. We know that there's something very, very special. This is not just bread and wine. It's not just a symbol that we get because we showed up and we are entitled to this. It's something very special that we prepare for, that is for people in a very special disposition who see this Eucharist in a very special way. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the Eastern churches and the Eucharist. I'm Father Thomas Leia on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion, and to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's taborlife.org. This is Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and you are listening to Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. We're looking at the real presence of the Eucharist as it is lived out in the Eastern churches. And it ought to be lived out in both churches, East and West. I mean, it's what the church believes, East and West. It has always believed that. And it's a real shock to us priests. I mean, we really are reeling to find out that more than one study is affirming that only three out of 10, three out of every 10 Catholics truly believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. Now, one of the reasons these studies say for this amazing statistic is because a lot of Catholics actually don't believe or don't understand that the church actually teaches that their bread and wine consecrated at the Mass or the liturgy is in fact the body and blood of Christ. But it is, and the church ought to teach that. So that's why I'm glad you're listening, because that's what we're trying to teach here. We're trying to teach it as it is experienced in the Eastern Lung of the Church. So we're 
in the preparation part, the big buildup, which I mentioned, starts in your homes, in your life, winding down on Saturday during the evening prayer of the church. The evening prayer is something that goes only back to the Jewish tradition, an evening and morning prayer, using that prayer for each day to begin it and to end and to begin the next day with prayer. And that's what we do in the church. So we have the preparation starting with the Vesper service on Saturday evening. Then we start to think in terms of liturgy, of repentance, of calm, of focus. And we come to liturgy. We should come to liturgy of the Mass at least a few minutes early. Amazing how people, I call it, beaming aboard. You know, like Star Trek. Remember that show, Star Trek? They used to sort of like magically beam aboard the starship, you know, their spaceship or on top of a planet or something. It's amazing. But sometimes people just seem to beam aboard. You look out at liturgy, five minutes before it's going to begin or the mass, and there's not that many people. Then you start the liturgy or the mass, and all of a sudden the church is full. How in the world did they get there? Just sort of beam aboard. But you see, again, this reflects a little bit of a lack of belief in the real presence or understanding it fully. Because when there's something very special, what do we do? What do you do before a ball game? When you get tickets to a ball game, you get tickets to some event. Generally, you try to get there a little bit earlier, don't you? Make sure you get your seat, your place, you settle in, you get your refreshments, maybe meet up with some people there, read the program, the ambiance, if it's a concert and so on. At least I like to do that. We like to kind of get there early. We also want to get a parking space. We don't want to be late. We don't want to miss it. Well, we should adopt that and more so for the Eucharist, being in the very presence of God incarnate. And we're going to touch God with our very bodies in the Eucharist. So come earlier. And in the Eastern churches, in the Missal that we have, the book that we use to follow the liturgy, there is in that book some very lengthy but very beautiful, very rich prayers that prepare us for liturgy. Again, it's part of that preparation. We have to be repentant. Ideally, as I mentioned, go to confession. Now, you don't have to go to confession every time you go to Eucharist. But you know what? It actually was a common practice, practically a required practice, and a very wise and good one and effective one too. So don't scoff at it. Consider it. So we prepare ourselves through a... a we prepare ourselves for a state of repentance, of openness, to receive the Eucharist, of meditating upon its mystery through these preparatory prayers. So come to Mass or liturgy and allow your time to prepare, settle in. The Mass, the church, is not a vending machine. It doesn't say Saint vending machine. It says Saint Matthew or Saint John or whatever. We go to the church not to put our envelope in and pull a lever and get Jesus, then run out. We go to experience something, to be transformed, to be caught up into something like St. Paul was caught up into the heavens in the experience he had of his conversion to Christ. A similar thing is happening to us. We're being caught up in the very heavens by being caught up in the very body of Jesus Christ. Just imagine that. We should be willing to come and camp out overnight to get there early enough. We should be able to crawl on our face to be worthy of this, to crawl over broken glass if we had to, to approach God in that intimate form. So we approach with the right attitude. And then during the liturgy, the priest in the Eastern churches, yes, he does chant the words of consecration after a big buildup in the liturgy. Because remember, the Eucharist does come towards the end of liturgy. It's kind of like the climactic moment. There's a big buildup before, during, and at the moment of Eucharist. And in the Eastern churches, the 
priest then calls down the Holy Spirit upon the gifts to change them into the body and blood of Christ. Now, in the Western Church, this calling down of the Holy Spirit, called the epiclesis or epiclesis, however you want to pronounce it, that happens before the words of consecration in the Latin rite. In the Eastern Churches, it happens afterwards. But both East and West do have the words of consecration, the same words from the Scripture, and they have the calling down of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that changes the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. It's always the Holy Spirit that is the operant factor in the sacraments of the church. The Holy Spirit is the one that ordains a man to the priesthood, marries someone, changes the oil into the oil of gladness for anointing for baptism, or the oil of chrism for chrismation, confirmation, or the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. The priest is the mediator for the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the action and actually incarnates itself into that matter, into that oil, into the bread and wine, into whatever it is that is being transformed. And in the Eastern churches, in the Eucharistic prayer, which we call the anaphora, there's a very important phrase that the priest prays. He asks the Holy Spirit to come down to change the gifts into the body and blood of Christ. But actually, he says before that, that we would be transformed that the Holy Spirit come and transform us, transform us to prepare us to receive the Eucharist, but also the point of the Eucharist is to transform us. Remember, we come to Mass, we come to church, a liturgy, to be transformed, to be imbued with the very presence of the Holy Spirit, to walk out of there very charismatic in the true and full sense, Spirit-filled people, we're filled with the body and blood of Christ, which means our very bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We're walking and talking temples. We should be filled with joy. In fact, there is a certain joy and peace that happens. You can feel it when you receive the Eucharist. There is something very special that happens. And after we receive the Eucharist in the church, there are prayers that are chanted in the Byzantine liturgy, but there's also, once again, in our pew books, there's some very lengthy, as always, lengthy and beautiful, rich prayers of thanksgiving of the Eucharist. Those are some of my favorite, written by St. Basil the Great, St. John Damascene. These prayers are lengthy. Some of them are short. There's actually some short ones. John Chrysostom actually wrote a few short ones. But who cares if they're lengthy? And the reason why prayers are lengthy in the church, especially the Eastern churches, is because God is so great, God is so timeless, God is so infinite, that we, in a sense, we're stumbling or groping to find yet another description, another way to give glory to God, another way to ask for our forgiveness because we're so mindful of unworthiness. And these prayers should be said when you return back to your place where you're standing or, or your pew in the Eastern churches, you should say these prayers of thanksgiving or wait till after liturgy to say them. They're rich and beautiful. You don't have to say them all. There's several, but at least say one of them because they really express our true posture and hopefully what we're thinking and feeling after receiving the body and blood of Christ. When the faithful receive the body and blood of Christ in the Byzantine liturgy, the priest then holds up the chalice and says, Save your people, Lord, and bless your inheritance. And he blesses the congregation with it. And they respond with a chant. He returns to the altar. He takes the censer. And he incenses the Eucharist, the leftover Eucharist in the chalice, 
and he says, Be exalted above the heavens, O Lord, let your glory be of all the earth. He says this three times while he bows to the sacred gifts on the altar. This, and along with the liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts that is celebrated during Lent in the Byzantine churches, is probably the closest the Eastern churches come to what the West might know as benediction. We don't have benediction per se in our liturgical repertoire, but we do have moments that are very similar, and we have a pre-sanctified liturgy, as I mentioned, that is very similar. But nonetheless, it's an adoration of the Eucharist. It's a way of exalting God who is present, truly present in the Eucharist. And then the gifts are returned to the side table where they are then consumed, usually by the deacon. And we go forth from there as people filled with Christ, the very presence of God, sanctified and transformed so that we will transform the world. We'll talk more about this great mission of the Eucharist in other programs. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Radio is it's training for the troops. It's a interaural of the ear boot camp. The folks who listen, who grow in their faith, grow in charity, grow in all the virtues, they then go out and exert an influence far beyond just themselves. Catholic radio has an exponential effect for bringing people deeper into the faith. Dr. Ray Garendi thinks Catholic radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!